Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast, the podcast where we bring you two thematically linked films, one mainstream and one cult, and talk about them both. Um, I'm really excited, as I am every single week, for our pairing, uh, and not just because I pick them. Uh, sometimes you guys pick them. If you have a, a pair that you'd like us to tackle or a film that we can pair with something else, reach out to us at cultandclassicpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at cultandclassicpodcast. Uh, and also, please subscribe and like our podcast wherever you get it refer to your friends and leave us a review. It really helps us. And we are super glad to be part of your day every day. I don't know what I was going to say there. I'm glad to be part of your lives. How about that? Okay. So I'm your host, Nate Wyckoff, film critic and comedian. And we have an old school day today. We've got our original two contributors here with me. We have Tad Mastriani. How are you doing, Tad? I hate Zoom. Wah, wah. We are recording on Zoom. I'm going to say Zoom's actually been fairly good to us, uh, although although there have been some hiccups along the way and continue to be every once in a while. Uh, and we also have with us Jeff Tucker. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. Still a replicant, so don't mess with me. Wah, wah. Uh, yeah, well, that's a nod to what we have on the table for today. Uh, this pairing is called Adventures in Mining. Yes, that is right. M-I-N-I-N-G, mining. And we have with you, uh, for you, 1982's Blade Runner. We're actually going to discuss uh, the 2007 uh, final cut, as it's called. We'll, we'll get into the details of what that means. And then next week, we're going to pair part two with the cult film Dinosaurs in a Mining Facility uh, from 2018. I am very, very excited to talk to you about both of these movies, and I can't wait to hear what our panelists have to say and bring to the table, and uh, I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Again, send us emails, send us messages, blah, 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 get all that stuff out of the way. Okay, we're going to dive right in. Blade Runner. This is truly an iconic movie, one of the most um, referenced and... Um, inspiring films i would say for filmmakers anything science fiction and futuristic tends to have some sort of nod to this 1982 film by ridley scott uh, with harrison ford sean young and, and ton daryl hannah rucker howard tons of fantastic uh, actors we're going to talk specifically about the 2007 final cut now 
almost i guarantee almost everybody listening to this podcast has seen some version of this film if not multiples and if you haven't well i hope you do because i really think that it gives a good lens with which to view science fiction films post 80s because so many everything from the super mario brothers movie to um the matrix heavily references blade runner uh and this is of course a film that is based on a philip k dick novel called um do androids dream of electric sheep and philip k dick for those of you who don't know is probably next to william gibson is like the iconic cyberpunk author really the the entire concept of what we think of as this cybernetic futuristic gritty dirty city vibe was created by philip k dick and uh and peers like william gibson so just to run the plot down of blade runner it's it's nuanced but i don't think the plot on the surface is actually that complicated uh, in a very commercialized planet destroyed future uh, everything is tall ugly gray buildings flying cars uh, it looks like constant night it rains all the time uh, harrison ford is in this reality sort of a a futuristic noir detective named decker and his job is as a blade runner which is to hunt down uh, what they call in the film replicants in the book they're actually just called androids or andes uh is to and his job is to go hunt renegade ones down and kill them because they look just like people um but they have special skills like super strength or whatever the case might be you know more robotic computerized skills um and oftentimes i guess they go rogue because essentially they're sentient slaves that are created to do the tasks that are too hard for other people or that they don't want to do so we're getting uh, a lot of i robot the movie not the story by isaac asimov vibes and that's because i robot is very uh very heavily um derivative of this as well so we have decker and he's tasked with getting these four replicants um to kill them he doesn't have to get them he just has to shoot them and uh but it's hard to track them down he's brought on because he's the only one that the police force thinks can do it uh, and then they tag on an extra one who is a runaway who he meets in the very beginning played by sean young uh, who is probably the most advanced replicant and it's very difficult to tell she's a replicant uh, except for her glowing eyes we'll talk about that later and uh and she doesn't know that she's a replicant until he find until he's essentially told to test her to see how good she is then when she finds out uh she sort of flees and and goes to decker and at the end of the film spoiler alert not a spoiler it's totally fine uh you'll still really enjoy the movie and there's a lot to talk about uh they leave together um so it's this story of you know it, it really asks a lot of questions about what does it mean to be human right because the androids have sentience they have understanding they they can learn things they have emotional growth but they're built to only last a certain number of years they have a, a built-in obsolescence which is uh, designed to frankly kill them before they become emotionally aware enough to rebel well obviously that doesn't always happen some mature faster than others as happened uh, with the four that Decker is hunting on Earth. Now, where did they come from? Uh, various roles, uh, but they primarily came from a mining facility on another planet. Adventures in mining, folks. I didn't steer you wrong. Um, <clears throat> and now they're on Earth. There is uh, Vern, who is the strong one that can lift tons of weight. There is Pris, who was essentially a sex robot, played by Daryl Hannah. 
uh, Rucker Hauer, who's like a tactician. He's very smart, very brilliant. Uh, and then we have, uh, I, I, for, I forget the name of our fourth. Um, does anybody remember uh, her name? Zora, Zora by Joanna Cassidy. Uh, she does a great job as well. And <clears throat> each of these replicants are are doing different tasks on Earth, but the main reason they came back to Earth instead of running away, which as Decker says earlier is what most um, uh, rebellious replicants do, is that they're coming back to Earth because they're trying to hunt down their creator to find out how to extend their life. They want this built-in obsolescence removed. Now, it doesn't happen. Uh, he says they can't happen. And we get this sort of, I don't know, I guess Rucker Howard's character Roy has this moment where he comes to, he, he accepts the fact that he's going to die and it becomes a punishment slash sharing his feelings of abandonment with the rest of humanity, AKA Decker. So we get some really great moments. There's a ton of lore behind this uh, film and the making of this film. So let's just dive right into uh, each of our experiences with this movie. I'll start out and say that when I first saw Blade Runner, uh, it was the director's cut, which is not the final cut. And I was, I was pretty young. Uh, maybe it was even a work print cut earlier. But uh, when I first saw this movie, I was really excited because I'd always heard about this movie and I, I loved films, especially science fiction, especially cyberpunk films. I was a big Shadowrun fan, as all of us on the panel are. And I was disappointed. Not in the visuals. The visuals are stunning. It is a, almost exclusive. Well, it's heavily practical effects and green, some of the best green screen work you will ever see in your life is in this movie. Uh, and it's what we all think of when we think of a, of a cyberpunk future. But the story, I, I didn't get some parts and I thought that it was also overly simple in some ways. And what's funny is, is it is a simple plot, as I said, but the nuances in the atmosphere that Ridley Scott really and his, and his team and our direction, everything really went for is very well done. And there's, it, it sort of is that style is substance moment. It really adds another level to analysis uh, with this movie. Well, let's go to Tad. Tad, what is your experience with Blade Runner? And uh, what do you feel now that we've watched this final version for this 10,000th time? You know, I do recall watching this movie back when I was working at the video store. And I'm pretty sure I watched kind of the original cut, like how it was in theaters, because it was VHS. And um, that was the 2000s. So the Matrix had already come out and it was already pretty obvious where all the inspiration came from. And rewatching this movie, it's clear through, you know, the lens of, you know, hindsight that uh, this is a template. This is a, fil this is a filmmaker's film. This is a template for a lot of stuff that was to come down the road. And it's just Maybe Ridley Scott knew that at the time, but I couldn't help but watching this movie and just be reminded of his work in Alien and how similar they felt. Even Tyrell Corporation feels similar to Whalen Yutani. It even That's has right. the same kind of like, we're interstellar colonists, except that in one, it's just, I don't, I, in Alien, and it's been a long time, honestly, since I've watched Alien, but as I recall, it was, you're either mining or you are uh, a space marine, and that's pretty much it. There's almost no in between. Yeah, you're, you're or, or you're a space scavenger. So you're a scavenger right. or you're a miner. Um, so and he, that was his film before this one. He he yeah. he did like a commercial short film in the middle. I think it was Perfume or something. But uh, this was his follow up to Alien. And 
thematically they they fit well um but it's it's just i i even see it i think i, I can't remember anymore because i i think i tried to block it out but i remember watching prometheus a few years back and trying it, it's one of those things that i do it was kind of the thing i did with batman v superman where i tried to watch it and go maybe i can find a silver lining into this this shit pile that everyone talks about and we still haven't had that discussion on this podcast which i am raring to go when it comes to that but um there's I a actually, reason because i i am a prometheus advocate as i am batman vs superman you know this uh I, so but anyway continue i don't think prometheus was that bad honestly no, it was a, like, good film. a lot of a lot of people thought that it destroyed the alien franchise which like, is stupid that's really fucking dumb yes um but i think there was was it in prometheus nathan fact check me where there was sort of a you know meet the creator moment yes. similar to this yeah okay so they 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 met the ceo of whale and yutani because he was trying to figure out how to meet these these uh the the space jockeys and he did and then he got his ass destroyed too it's it's the same stuff yeah all it's one of those so and and i think his his hbo ridley scott's hbo series right now isn't it is it raised by wolves um is is also similar i mean it's only two episodes right now it's one of those one of those kind of uh come as they might cv shows but again it's another humans to robots or robotic or synthetic or created when do we become god and how does that alter you know uh anything like does it does it alter our perception of god if we're able to create life from nothing kind of thing um, same idea with roy meeting the ceo it's like that's right how do i how do i get more life and it's like ah don't we all you son of a bitch you're not gonna get it sorry i don't get it you ain't you certainly ain't getting it i do love that dialogue they have where he runs through it all you know it's it's all pseudoscience but basically it's like no sorry we tried all of this yeah. and it doesn't work um yeah yeah you're talking about yeah when when roy goes to the head of um uh, of the who designed his brain essentially and is like do this do this do this and the guy's like we tried it we tried it we tried it it doesn't work and we get one of the many iconic moments from this movie where rutger hauer holds his essentially his father in his hands his head in his hands and kisses him passionately like that strange like mel gibson kissing Rene russo in in their version of um of hamlet and then crushes his head and puts his thumbs in his eyes until he's dead and he's crying and, and screaming he's got this crazy you know rucker howard grimace face uh and it's this moment of it, it also reminds me if anybody has read the the preacher uh dc vertigo comics when when uh essentially god is god comes home and and the gunman is there and shoots him because god's like hey what did i miss you know and and it's just like wow you you can't you know it's that frankenstein's monster returning to dr frankenstein that why 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 is all the questions they have and can you help me and the the creature the creation has that moment of you can't help me you don't know anything and the creator is like i don't know anything <laughs> you know like there's there's nothing to help you with life is sort of what and maybe it's where i am in my life right now uh you know which i think a lot of us are you know struggling jobs rough you know the market's rough uh and and just things are rough all around and so watching it this time i don't know if my takeaway is different but the vibe is definitely a you're on your own and we're all lost. So searching for 
connection and assistance is you may, you'll have connection, but searching for an answer or guidance is a futile effort. Um, you'd be much better off spending your time, you know, living your life your way, which, you know, uh, YOLO. So I, I see that. Jeff, what is your experience with Blade Runner and how do you feel watching the final cut this time? Well, you're on mute, number one. So technology is a struggle, Mr. Engineer. Yeah, I almost I almost started speaking and I noticed. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I actually don't even remember the first time I watched this. I, I don't think I liked it, though. Um, I don't think I I don't think I was ready for it because th this film, you know, there's some action in it, but there's it's not driven by action. It's not really driven by like, you know, oh, I love these characters and hate these characters. Yeah. And so I'm waiting for a comeuppance. If you really like, you know, if you ask 50 people, you may get 20 different answers on like, who's the villain, you know, sure. um, of this story, like who's a good guy, you know, you may get another 20 different answers because, you know, is, um, is Decker a good guy? He's going in, you know, cleaning up all the messes that are around. Right. Uh, or is he a bad guy? Cause he's killing these replicants that really are just trying to live. Right. You know, they're, and, they're indistinguishable from people in 99% of the ways. Yeah. Um, and they're all holding jobs, most of them, except for Roy, right? Like they all have some sort of job. I guess Pris isn't doesn't really have a job. We assume that she's a prostitute because she's dressed that way and she's a pleasure robot, and that's kind of how she operates. But um, that that may or may not be the case. But it's sort of that also brought me to the answer. If you could actually do an interesting discussion and analyz, uh, analytics on the immigrant concept in this movie, um, and I don't know how much that's been pushed because it is, I think. Like you said, this is a slavery and man versus God um, narrative overall. I think that those are the two biggest elements that most people will discuss with Blade Runner. Um, but we also get that idea of, like you said, is Decker a villain, right? He's the detective. The detective's always supposed to be the hero in these kind of noir throwbacks. Um, but he doesn't even, we get that great scene after he's been saved. Vern, the strong one, is going to probably kill him. And, um, and, Sean Young's character uh, saves him by shooting Vern in the head and he dies. And, uh, and they get back to Decker's apartment and he's like, you shaking? I always shake afterward, uncontrollably. Like we get this moment where he doesn't like his job. And we know from the beginning that he's been forced back to do this job. Uh, he, was, he quit before this. Um, and then we see the people he's hunting. And I remember the first time I saw it and it still holds, it's a similar theme where it's uncomfortable to watch him hunt, especially Zora, the first, um, the first replicant he finds and, and kills. She's like a, a kind of a burlesque dancer. Um, and she has a snake, which interesting backstory, that was her pet snake. Um, and and he, he lies to her. He pretends to be like from some sort of labor board watchdog group. And she, of course, knows it's a fake. So she beats him up and runs and he chases her through the streets and shoots her in the back. And it's made even more uncomfortable because she's the imagery is crazy. She's got on uh, some sort of stripper outfit, like just a little bralette and, and these, you know, like thigh high boots and panties. And then she's got a jacket that is completely clear plastic. And the idea is that even clothed, even totally hidden in this society, because these creatures can pass for human, um, they're 
completely powerless. They're right. They're, they're, they're hidden, but they're not. It's a false facade. They are not the same. They look the same, but everyone sees them as something else. And because she's nude and there's also a gender play, which is interesting in this movie, which we'll talk about um, when she's shot and killed, it's upsetting right you have essentially a, a a helpless naked woman even though she's she's a soldier right she's an assassin is what she was in her in her previous life um she's shot by this man in the street and all he has to do is wave a badge and he walks away yeah. um and it's it's troubling and I, I think as an adult especially too we're more I don't know if we're as an adult or not. I guess as an adult, I recognize, like you, I recognize now that this is a statement. Whereas a kid, it just seems sad or mean, right? Like it just seems unpleasant. And then when they get that, it is unpleasant. It is sad and mean. And that's kind of the point. Um, which brings me to what I want to talk about with this cut. I've mentioned that there's a ton of different cuts of this movie. Um, I think there's around seven acknowledged cuts, but there's probably more because it's been hacked a bit so much. There's a TV cut. There's the original U.S. theatrical cut. There's a work print cut from before, which was later released uh, along with the Criterion cut, which I think the Criterion cut was known as the director's cut. It, it's, it's not... I mean, was that, anyway, there are a million different cuts. Um, the main three you'll find is, like you said, Tad, the VHS copy or some of the, there's a, there actually is the uh, director's cut, which is not the final cut. Um, although Ridley Scott was sort of a consultant on it. Um, and that was released on VHS, but most VHS copies at the time you're talking about in rental stores would have been an original cut, at least in New England. Uh, and that was the US theatrical cut. And it's one of those cases where producers thought it was too much of a downer. So they had them happy up the ending. Now, the ending is, of course, um, Decker runs off with his, uh, this, this new android, Sean Young, Rachel is her character's name. And, uh, and they run off because, you know, they, they seem to have fallen in love and uh, in this very noir way. And we don't know how long she's supposed to live uh, in the final cut because they don't tell you. We assume that she has a limited lifespan like all of the replicants, but we don't know. Um, but she knows that Decker has seen her file and so she asks him and he very unconvincingly says he hasn't looked at it. Um, so we can assume that he's looked at it. And in the happy ending they forced in for the theatrical cut and most of the other releases as well, he tells her that she has, un she does not have unlimited life. Um, I mean, she doesn't have a limit on her life. And um, that's not how the original, that's not how Ridley Scott or Harrison Ford or uh, Philip K. Dick wanted that ending to be because, and I understand why. I think while I like happy endings in some way, it diminishes the message of the movie to live your life, right? I mean, because- yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense though. Like no. once you, once you've actually like, you know, digested this film a couple of times, because like it, the only way that it's even a happy ending is if you've come to the conclusion that he is the hero, which he's not, he's just, you know, really a cog in this you know, right. kind of world that, you know, maybe the world is evil. Maybe, you know, you know, it's just, there's no, um, it, it's not really, clear cut as to you know what's good and bad so like really jamming in a, a like you know the 
they all lived happily ever after just doesn't make sense right it doesn't it doesn't like you said it doesn't work um it's not it it's sort of it's one of those things where uh it undoes too many of of the of the impacts of the movie like now the character gaff he's played by fantastic edward james almost who always at this time plays this weird side character um he's a flamboyant sort of assistant to the po the policeman in charge of the blade runners who who forces decker back into work and at the end uh gaff shows up and to find roy or batty as he's also known um rucker howard's character dead because he died of natural causes uh while fighting with decker and uh and he's like good job um, and then he says to him as he's leaving, uh, and this is from the director's cut. I don't know if they cut, the, some people online said they cut this. I don't remember this being cut from the original cut, but perhaps it is. Um, but he says, it's a shame she won't live. Um, it's a shame she won't live, but then again, who does? And it's sort of this throwaway line, but it's not really a throwaway line, right? Like it's right, like this character, this side character who always has this like knowing sneer really does know what's what's up right because roy's whole thing is that he's like i've he's got that great speech that Patton oswalt loves everyone loves his speech being recited um you know i've seen things uh your your eyes wouldn't believe and he describes these crazy vistas and then he's like they will with they'll die with me to, they'll go back to the flow of time i'm paraphrasing uh and then he has that line they'll fall away like tears in the rain which the tears in the rain line was apparently this is a well-known legend um uh, ad-libbed by rucker howard but it fits i mean he really played the character to a t and it's that idea that you can live 80 years but not actually live your life uh is is really kind of a root of this movie right and decker is like you said a, a cog in the wheel right he's just this piece in this machine and is that living because it doesn't really sound like it um and he doesn't he seems listless and jeff you mentioned that the driving force is sort of lacking like things happen almost the way that you would do a job that you're just doing for the paycheck right yeah like you're just doing it because that gets you this to get you this it's just what you're supposed to do and you have nothing else to do that's going to pull you away because you're stuck in this routine uh just like a cog in a machine and they're not living and so this this movement for him to leave with this character who has potentially a very short life is is that's the impact right like it's almost you can take it as so many things you can take it as a call to action right live your life you can take it as get what you can when you can uh because everything is ephemeral it's 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 this nice wrap up that Decker has learned he recognizes from these four replicants that he has killed this lesson and from Rachel, Rachel's existence, this lesson that he must now either make the decision to remain an obscure component uh, or actually live some sort of life for himself that has some sort of risk and reward potential. So I, I think that the, it's one of those cases where producers messing with stuff, um, they can really screw it up. Uh, and I think it, it probably, I don't know, people have said, I, I've heard this argued, that that happy quote ending has actually, was actually one of the reasons why this was 
sort of a bomb when it initially released and had middling critical reviews. They were good and they were bad. Um, I, I don't think that's true. Um, and my reasoning is this is a dark and grim film and most dark and grim films that have a really strong, serious social message, whether it's social justice or more often, I think it's even harder for films like this, which have just a human condition message, right? They're harder sells for mainstream audiences. And a lot of people don't wanna go to the movies to get bummed out. Even if it's a horror movie and everyone dies, there's a sense of playfulness that this isn't real. I'm going to watch this rather than watching the news because this isn't real. But when you see this movie, it is, it is deeply moving in a way that, uh, partly because of the performances, partly because of the oppressive atmosphere, it's raining so often, it's never light, it's always nighttime in this city. Um, it looks like the worst of our inner cities and industrial areas, right? Everything is just oppressive. There's commercialization everywhere. The only bright spots are uh, uh, lit up advertisements um, for everything from Coke to Atari to, um, I forget, so there's, there's so many. Um, I mean, if you, if you compare it to like the, the movies that it, you know, the countless movies this has inspired, like a lot of those similar things like exist in the matrix. Like there's yeah. almost no, there's no light in that film. Right. Um, but I think what they do is they create a very clear villain in that film. And I yeah. think that's what your mainstream audience can hold on to. Like when you come to yeah. the climax of Blade Runner, it's like, do you want, like, what do you want to happen? Like, what am I rooting for? Like, who, who am I, like, do I want uh, Decker to succeed in his mission of, uh, and, and, and eliminate this guy that's just, you know, that's a trying, runaway slave, to, yeah, that's a runaway slave. Yeah. or do I want the runaway slave to kill Decker who, you know, we've been following this film and is, you know, as, as close to our protagonist hero as we're going to get. And yeah. it's just like, like, what do I want? Like, I'm not. And in the end, the decision isn't even made for us because yeah, Batty just dies. Uh, yeah. He just dies. And it's, in, and it has this, and there's this super heavy, I'm surprised, this is what makes me surprised John Woo didn't make this film because we have the dove that Rucker Hauer has been holding uh, during this crazy fight scene. Like it was a stick, no less. Like, right, yeah. Hey. With one hand, letting it go and it flies away across his face like his soul ascending, um, this white dove. And so I agree. I think that this is one of those cases where we have a really ambiguous open uh ending where there is no true good right there is no true good so the audience doesn't know where to go or what to do with it and that upsets a lot of people and it also does what i've often experienced they most of us have where it gives people a negative impression first and then they come around to it once they've been able to have time to accept the gray area message that that will happen right so this yeah, is one of at the end of the day there's so much beauty in this film like oh from the performances to the dialogue to the even the ideas like Absolutely. once like you said once you digest them but in the moment it's dark you yeah. don't you don't even really know who to root for or like what mm -hmm. to feel in the moment like there isn't even like a score that's like feel this right now feel that right now yeah. it's 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 it really is like it just is you sit in the movie and really your your experience of the movie happens after you you 
you hit stop very much and walk so. away and go yeah, to sleep you as you, you said, go climb in your bed and then you experience the film because you go back and yes you, play you, it you over hit, yeah you play over and you start to think of the meanings and the feelings and you're like wow like tears in the rain like that's the that's a line like that's you know that ex, that, that ex, expresses how i feel about you know a hundred different things in this way you know and it's and that that's the that's where this movie really really comes in and so you got to earn it like this movie is beautiful but you got to earn it and i i think that from a from a craft standpoint and ridley scott so we've been talking about the various cuts the final cut is the one ridley scott actually returned to after um legal issues and discussions with warner brothers that ended in 2006 he actually went in and this is the one that's sort of the it's the composite of all the elements from the others that he had intended and liked. Plus, they, of course, did some beautiful restoration of the effects. And apparently, they even added a few things here and there. But I'll say, I, I mean, I've seen every version of this movie. Uh, and I, do, I would not be able to tell you which pieces they, which which visual like effect pieces they altered or, or upped, except for just cleaning it up. Because it really, whatever they put in, it is truly effectively similar um, In other words, practice. they learned from George Lucas and they went, yes, you see what he did. Don't do that. There's no was it in sync or Backstreet Boys who get knocked into the uh, ravine and Tatooine or whatever. <laughs> like, it's not that moment. Right. Um, it, it, everything fits. And so that's a welcome, uh, a welcome relief there. You also if you've seen one of the early uh, cuts of this film or the theatrical cut, there's, I believe, narration. At some point, Decker actually had narration uh, that that's not in this part um, because Ridley Scott, he, he did it. And he then decided it didn't work the way he wanted to. So he removed it. Nate, you're reminding me. Um, anyone who actually has followed Harrison's Ford career, Ford's career understands that he is like one of the biggest male divas in Hollywood. Like there's a story for every single goddamn movie he's ever been attached to where he's being a giant dick. And most of the time, honestly, I agree with him. In this movie, yeah. this is one of those times when he was literally like, I don't want to do this fucking narration thing. And he was apparently dragged kicking and screaming in to do it. He was fighting it tooth and nail all the way. He well, did not want it. And I do love when people, when actors fall in love with their characters to the point where they save the audience from unfair or, or inaccurate character actions like I love um, this is of course a legendary story and there's many variations but um, the first interracial kiss on American television was of course William Shatner um, and Nichelle Nichols uh, who, you know Captain Kirk and Uhura and um, they the studio the, the station rather said no after it had already been gone through and approved they're like no and they were filming it and they said fine we'll film we'll film no and then we'll film the other one and just so you can see them and then you can decide. And so they said, fine. And they all day they filmed and did the scenes and, and they were, and Shatner was like, no, I think we need to do this again and probably kiss Michelle Nichols like 10,000 times and who wouldn't. Um, and finally, like we have to get the other shot. And he's like, okay, yep. This is the last one. We got to get it. And he did it. And after, and after he did that version of the scene, he looked at the camera and crossed his eyes. And so they couldn't possibly use the shot. <laughs> and so they had to run the kiss and of course it's it was a milestone and a, a, a victory for race relations um in the in the television sphere and uh and and it's things like that obviously that's a, got a much higher loftier social justice goal but the moment when we have like this where i'm sure that the i, I vaguely remember hearing the narration because it is in several cuts um 
it was probably a lot shittier than it would have been had Harrison Ford been down to do it, right? Because when you force someone to do something, you get some real rough performances like John Leguizamo and Hoskins in um, Super Mario Brothers, which by the way, uh, read up on Super Mario Brothers, we will absolutely tackle it at some point on this podcast, including the new fan cut that has come out with extended things. But that film, the main inspiration for it was Blade Runner which is hilarious and obvious. Uh, when you watch Super Mario <laughs> Brothers, it's very clear, which is the weirdest thing to think that you could make a movie for kids uh, or even off of a kid's franchise based off of anything in Blade Runner is the stuff of madness. Um, it but was literal madness. It is. And, uh, and I, I highly recommend, guys, go out and watch. You can watch online um, the, the fan recreation cut. It is, it's the same uh, guy who was involved, uh, who was instrumental in doing the... Um, Thief and the Cobbler recobbled edition, which we'll also do on this podcast. I'm excited for. Uh, it, it's really worth it. It's it fascinating. It adds tons of material. Um, the the lead in for potential spinoffs. It's wild. But anyway, so Blade Runner. It is one of those movies that I think is not going to be swallowed easily by people who are looking for a popcorn movie. Um, I think, and popcorn movies have their place, but uh, this is probably not the one for them. Now, I'm going to end it with uh, sort of a, I mean, really Scott has said that this is what he feels is his most personal and quote, most complete film. And I, I love Ridley Scott's work. I see science fiction work, especially is of course my, my favorite uh, of, of, of just of any science fiction, honestly. And, uh, and that's saying something. And this movie really is a triumph to get on screen. I think this movie, like Star Wars uh, before it, um, like, you know, several other passion projects that, that people make where they get something, they get, they work hard to get the clout to do the big thing they want to do uh, and, and put out the vision they want. And that doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it can be a really special thing. It can be a really rough thing too, depending on the vision that you have, right? Like, I mean, it, it, could, be, um, it could be Star Wars, you know, after American Graffiti or Blade Runner after Alien, or it could be um, uh, Battlefield Earth, right? Which was Travolta's passion project, uh, which I'm gonna blame on Scientology there. Uh, but, you know, like you've got, um, you've got just an incredible potential for success, risk-taking success with a movie like this. And I think that there's a reason that so many filmmakers in particular have cited this as both inspiration and one of their favorite movies of all time. So we're gonna, we're gonna move to the recommendations and leave it at that. Uh, I give this my recommendation. I think I've already made clear why. This is both a piece of cinema history, uh, a United States film history, science fiction history. This is the movie you need to watch along with, of course, Alien and um, I'm going to throw in Forbidden Planet and uh, The Terminator, right? Like these are the Terminator 2. These are the movies that if you're a science fiction lover, you need to watch because it's going to inform how you digest and understand uh, science fiction, cinema and fiction to come. And of course, read the book as well. Phil K. Dick is a fantastic author and it's totally wild what he does. Uh, and if you want some, some interesting reads he has a wealth of work and william gibson with neuromancer is another one i recommend so okay that's me tad would you recommend blade runner uh in any of its iterations and if so why i recommend all the iterations because it's worth kind of getting a glimpse of 
what everyone was kind of looking towards for their inspiration through the 90s and 2000s. I mean, look at almost anything over the past 30 years and it's something in it, it chances are is gonna call back to this even in parody. Um, also, we barely talked about the characters and actors in this movie. And this is one of those movies where <laughs> the first thing when I was watching this movie is I was like, holy shit, David, uh, not David, James Hong, because I was yeah. about to say David Lopan, because Big Trouble Little China is one of my favorite goddamn movies. And you instantly, as soon as you hear James Hong's voice, you instantly are like, oh, I know that guy. Yep. It, it's fan it, I love it. Never mind that at this time, I think Sean Young was 23. It's understated how gorgeous Sean Young was in this yes. role. I don't consider Sean Young to be a fantastic actress, but good Lord, did she have a screen presence. I, we're of a generation where our ex, our uh, exposure to Sean Young at that point, like mid nineties was already, she was already kind of a joke in Hollywood. And she was in Ace Ventura, Ace Ventura. As, as, as Detective Einhorn. Yep. And she was notorious for having a, ma a bad temper and everything. But yep. this was when she was young and like, she just, she just chewed every scene she was in. It was unreal. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting. I could almost credit and I, or just credit. I don't think she's, uh, she's, she's done some good work before. I mean, she was also in Dune, uh, the Lynch version and, and stuff. She, and, and I think really Scott's probably partly to blame on this or all to blame. She's very clearly a replicant from the first time we see her, right? Because she's so stilted. Um, and she's so, she plays it as though, like she takes in the information, computes, and then puts out it, and it, whatever she's going to say. And if there's emotion, that's when it comes out. It's not instantaneous on her face. Um, it does break a little bit when she cries later, when she finds out what she is, you know, that she's a replicant, et cetera. Um, I, and it's, it's one of those things where I, I think the decision, whether, whether conscious or not was, well, we know it may spoil any surprise, but we think the atmosphere and tone is more important. Um, and that's sort of the whole message of this movie, right? Or the whole effect of this movie is the atmosphere and tone is more important. Yes, we're holding this shot a little long. Yes, we've shown you a cityscape like this already. Yes, there are floating cars and elevators, which we'll show you several times. Not that it's not beautiful or incredibly well done, because it is, but we've seen that. Um, and it's, it's, it's not just to show off the effects, which are incredible for 82 and now, they still hold up. Uh, it's also to force this atmosphere and force this sort of oppression, but also grandiosity, right? Like you're such a small thing and everything's so dark and you're so small, but also you're small because everything else is so massive and expansive. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I see you on that. And, uh, that's, also that's a good the, point. Nate. You, you pointed out what I, I completely forgot about this movie feels and looks more real than modern films because of the practical effect. This is one of those examples of why everyone talks about why the practical effects are better and why nobody these days can do them properly. When you look at this movie, you don't need it to tell you anything. This Every scene tells you exactly what you need to feel by looking at it. That's it. Yes. Uh, I had one, I knew one filmmaker friend who said this. They, they were talking about the uh, Tom Hanks film Road to Perdition based off the graphic novel. And I, I agree with him on this, but it's, it stands true for this one. He said, you could frame any single, uh, any single frame of film from this movie and hang it on your wall and it would be impressive. And that's, that is, I think the, 
most true of this movie of any film. Every single tiny little thing is done with intent. Um, and we have, uh, we also, I want to mention my favorite, favorite effect in this movie, which is that they use the, um, the Shufan process, uh, which is, uh, it was Fritz Lang created it, but it's when they, it's, it's when they make the human eyes reflect a little sort of red tint, like tinge in the iris. I mean, in the uh, pupil. Kind of a dead uh, giveaway. It is, sure, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> anyone that has a reflective eye. But yeah, it's a, it's such a cool effect. And it, you can actually do it at home if you get the right thing. You have, just have to have a piece of half-mirrored glass and you mount it 45 degrees angle uh, to the camera. And if you bounce the light off the person from that, then you'll get this reflection in the eyes. It's sort of like a red version of the cat eye glare. And it is such an effective thing, especially when, as these characters who are playing replicants do, except for Pris and... Um, Actually, uh, several of them do, but when they're staring straight ahead and it's like that almost sociopathic moment where just, I use that term because you don't know what they're thinking yet or what they're going to do yet. And that reflection is in the eye. It adds this otherworldly otherness to the characters that makes them really effective uh, as, as something different than human. And it's such a simple uh, low-tech effect. Jeff, would you recommend Blade Runner uh, to viewers? And if so, why? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, if, if you love film, like, yeah, you got to watch this. I, I don't know why you're listening to us. If you don't love film, um, you know, watch it. How anyway, many hate listeners do we have out there? You're listening like, yeah. I'm not going to watch nothing. Um, yeah. I mean, this, it is, it is a little bit hard to like kind of love in the moment, but I, I do think that there's just, uh, so much beauty in in this film in you know like not not just the the visuals but the ideas um you know it's there's like you know the whole um you know cyberpunk uh, writing period with um you know lots of content coming up you know if this film didn't exist like it, it eventually we would have gotten some cyberpunk but it may have been many years later and we wouldn't have gotten the same um, material that we have sure. now. Um, and, and we've gotten a lot of really good cyberpunk stuff. So, And of course, we just, wouldn't have half the anime we have now. It wouldn't look the same. Um, yeah. Anime is, of course, incredibly inspired. The cityscapes that we get. Um, listen back to our catalog, folks. We, I had a mini episode where I talked about um, uh, the amazing coffee table book, uh, Anime Architecture, um, by I believe Steve Reifkin, and 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 thanks to him for sending us that. It it is an incredible thing, and if you are drawn the way so many of us are to Blade Runner's aesthetics, checking that out will give you an entire new vista of how others have been inspired by it as well, and taken it to even even more grandiose heights. So, uh, awesome stuff there. Well. That is it for this first half of our Adventures in Mining uh, pairing. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about our next one as well. Uh, I think it even has Blade Runner inspirations, uh, clearly. It is called Dinosaurs in a Mining Facility from 2018, and uh, we will talk about that next week. Uh, to play us out, as always, is the Chud. But before I forget, definitely leave us a review, follow us and subscribe, like us wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends. Let us know how we're doing at Colton Classic Podcast at gmail.com and on Instagram at Colton Classic. Thanks so much, and I hope you guys have a great week.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.